Happy Valentine's Day. Speaking about, you know, Valentine's Day, you think about marriages. I was watching Jenna up there. Every time Mitch talks, I like to watch her eyes and the look on her face. She's like, what's he going to say? <laughs> so it is Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day rarely lands on a Sunday. And it's even more rare that it lands the day before the President's Day. So we're going to divulge in some meaningless trivia today. Which president, presidential couple, has been married the longest? Anybody know? Of all time. And you can choose. Who do you think? Huh? Who? H.W. and Barbara. H.W. and Barbara. Anybody else have any other guesses? Reagan's? Carter's? Okay. Do we, is it coming? Do we have that picture of them? Okay. It's a picture of the three couples that have been married the longest. And you're right. Barbara and George Bush have been married the longest. Clifton, you know, gets, I wish I had a prize for you. So um, they, you, you need a comb. Well, you don't need a comb because you, you don't need that. So uh, good job. So Clifton, he's a sharp guy. He got, so it's George and it's Barbara Bush. And there's a picture. And in the picture, it has him putting ear, you know, his fingers behind her head. And they're all dressed up in tuxedos and stuff. So I guess that has something with living a long life as having fun. But, Gary, you said Carters. And Carters have been married just months Shorter, not even a full year. So they've both been married about 68 years. It's a long time. And in third place was uh, Jerry and Betty Ford. Nobody missed. There it is. See the picture? And Jerry and Betty Ford have been, had been married 58 years when he passed away. So those are uh, pretty long marriages, right? And it's kind of fun looking at those. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to do something different because of the occasion. We've been kind of walking down the road to Jesus' crucifixion, and it's been pretty intense, and we thought we'd break the ice a little bit and have more of a relational talk today, a talk that relates, hopefully, uh, not just to those that are married, but even to anybody in your relationship with others. Uh, But to tell our story, we're going to tell a love story, all right? And we're going to tell this love story as sort of a long illustration, and then we're going to take some scripture and see some lessons that we can learn from it. Now, this story could be any of your ancestors, all right? We're going way back. Somebody that you didn't know personally, for sure. Um, true story, though. It's the story of Bill and Ida, a love story. You ready? We're going to jump into this, baby. So, Bill, we're going to meet him first. Bill was born in 1843. So, we're going way back. His dad, there's a picture of him, handsome young fellow. So uh, Bill was born in 1853, and he, his dad and his grandfather were iron manufacturers. He was born in Niles, Ohio, this small town. He was the seventh of eight surviving children. His mother loved the Lord. She was very loving to him. He had a great childhood. He was, you know, kind of happy-go-lucky, lots of fun, had these buddies that during the Mexican War, they would pretend they were soldiers, and they would drill each other, and then... Um, He would horseback ride, he would fish, he would camp, uh, he would uh, ice skate because, you know, there's a lot of, it gets cold there. And he did a lot of fun stuff. He actually liked to swim, but swimming changed his life because when he was nine, he almost drowned. He went down three times before he was pulled out. It had an impact on his life. The next year, his family moved to Poland. Not the country of Poland. Poland, there's a little town called Poland in Ohio. So he moved to Poland, Ohio. And when he moved to Poland, Ohio, he was thinking a lot about his his life. He was only nine years old, but he was thinking about he could have died. And his family loved loved the Lord. They went to a church. They went to a Methodist Episcopal church. A little bit of church history here. Um, Anybody ever go to a Methodist Episcopal church? 
Answer is, no, they don't exist. <laughs> they stopped existing. What happened is around the turn of the last century, around the early 1900s, the Methodist Episcopals merged with the United, Methodist, the United Brethren to form the United Methodist. But this was before that. It was a good group. They were a good biblical group. They studied their Bibles, very serious. He was 10 years of age when he went forward at an old-fashioned revival meeting, gave his life to God. This is back in the old days. And he became very serious. By the time he was in high school, he was a leader among his peers. He was a good student. He started a debate club. He was a really good speaker. At 17, he went away to college. He went to Allegheny College, this little college in, in Pennsylvania, and he got sick. And he had to come home, which was not common for him. And he wanted to go back to school, but they ran out of money because there was a thing called a recession. They had them back then, too. Couldn't get back to school. What are you going to do? And you can't go back to school. So he taught school for a term, and he worked in the post office as a clerk. And because he was a clerk, he was the first person to find out in Poland, Ohio, that the Civil War had started. And at 18, he became the, young, the first person to join. He started at 18. He fought in all four years of the war, and here's what's really remarkable. He was never wounded, and he never fell ill. Just very uncommon. So he was very healthy throughout the war. He started off as a private, and after he distinguished himself in his first battle, they made him a sergeant, a mess sergeant. He was supposed to bring rations to the troops, and he fought in the Battle of Antietam, one of the bloodiest battles in world history. To care for his men, to provide the food they needed and rations, he risked his life. And he made several trips out to the front. And he, I think he actually dragged some bodies to the side, you know, and saved some people. And he was recognized for his valor, and he was promoted a second lieutenant, and he was changed to a new regiment, because most of his regiment didn't exist anymore. He was put under a man named, um, a man named Major Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes. Hayes was a lawyer and politician, oh, 10 or so years older than him, maybe even more. And he took him under his wing. He became his mentor, and he became his, his big brother. When Hayes' family came to visit him on the battlefront, he, they brought Bill in like he was part of the family. They fought in battles together, and they were both promoted. Hayes to a colonel, and uh, Bill to a captain. They fought together as if he actually was running things like a brigadier general, but they didn't give him all the ranks. They couldn't keep up with all that was going on in that crazy war. They fought in the final campaign, the Shenandoah Valley campaign. The war ended. And Hayes was discharged a major general, and Bill was discharged a major. Hayes had this to say about Bill and his service. Uh, he said that Bill showed unusual and unsurpassed capacity especially for a boy his age. When battles were fought or service was to be performed in warlike things, he always filled his place. Hayes urged his young buddy to go into politics, you know, or at least to, to start off as a lawyer and be like him. Bill thought about it and he decided to become a lawyer. Became a lawyer and he moved to Canton, Ohio. He was a huge football fan, loved the Denver Broncos, and he knew that the, <laughs> he knew that, uh, the Hall of Fame Football's Hall of Fame was in Canton, Ohio. So, so he moved there to start his career. And there he met Ida. And Ida was totally different background. You know, opposite to track, right? Ida's totally different background. She 
is her, her grandfather started the, the newspaper in her town. Her father is a local banker. They are wealthy. Theirs is a small family. Right? I mean, they just, this, this, is a, this is a little family. And there's just her and her younger sister. And her dad, you know, she, she's kind of daddy's girl. Um, she works with him, helps him out at the bank. They go to church. I think they were in a Presbyterian church, but very devout, also family. Good, good, good people, but very wealthy. Her dad sends her to a, a finishing school so she can come back more refined and ready to go and all. She is cute, uh, petite, slight, more slight and built and slim. Um, she has sky blue eyes, fair skin, and her kind of taffy, uh, auburn-colored hair, but it's almost like a taffy you know, on her head. She, her hair is real curly, and she's just cute. And a lot of guys really like Ida. Major Bill hasn't been in town for very long when he meets her in 1867 at a picnic, and he's smitten by her at first sight. He just falls for this charming young lady. He, by the way, is at his prime. Bill stood about five feet seven inches. He had broad shoulders, barrel chest, he was brawny, big legs, thick neck. He weighed about 190 pounds. Um, he had dark hair, thick eyebrows, deep set, dark blue eyes, and a big nose. And he had a clear, pleasant voice. Despite those incredible features, her father offered her to tour Europe with him. What would you choose? Women? Bill or Europe? She chose Europe and went away for two years, and he waited for her. And in 1869, he began to court her. And they were finally married in January of 1871. And, and he was 27, she was 23. They had the world ahead of them. Uh, they continued to be devout in their faith. In fact, Bill served as the um, superintendent of the Sunday school and later served as the president of the local YMCA, which in that time was a very strong outreach, Christian outreach organization. And so they were very involved, and they had children. On Christmas Day, the year that they were married, so almost a year later, they had their first child, Catherine, whom they called Katie. And then in 1873, they had another daughter. And then things began to turn really weird for this young family. Hardship set in. Ida became ill. She had phlebitis, which was, they still don't, you know, so old, this information is so old, they didn't have the medicine we have today, but she had some kind of um, problems, disease in her veins, and she began having epileptic seizures. Her daughter was very frail and died by August. Born in April, died in August. Her health was shattered when her other daughter died in 1876. And she'd always had a little bit of a nervous temperament. You know, she's a little bit more frail, and she, her body just broke down. They didn't know what to do with her, and they declared her an invalid. So that same year, Bill is contacted by his old General Hayes, who is now Governor Hayes and running for the presidency of the United States. And they said, Bill, could you make some speeches on, on my behalf? And he said, okay, but I need to stay local because I, I need to take care of Ida. But when he made the speeches, he did such a good job that soon they said, Bill, could you run for Congress after Hayes had been elected president? And Ida said, I want you to do that. And so he moved ahead. 
and for most of the next 20 years, he served in the United States House of Representatives. His favorite time was when the Hayes were in office, because every Sunday evening, they would meet at the White House to sing Christian hymns together. That was what they did, because he too was a, a devout believer. And so those were, you know, those were good years, but you know, a lot of hard work. And he finally got himself in trouble because he believed in a high tariff. And I don't want to get into politics at all, we're talking kind of about politics, but that's what he believed in. And he passed a bill with his name on, a tariff with his name on. And then the economy, you know, they began having the prices rose for consumers. And so they voted him out of office. And that was considered to be his political funeral. And he and Ida were okay with it because they had each other and he felt like he'd done his service for his country. But there was a guy, there's always somebody around in these situations. There's a guy named Mark Hanna, and he was an entrepreneurial businessman. He may not have had a lot of principle himself, but he felt that this man had principle. And you rarely see a politician who's honest, a person who's willing to take a stand for what he believes in, even when it's not the popular thing. And he said, this is, this is something people need. And so he used that, and he persuaded Bill to run for governor, and guess what? He won, and he became a very popular governor of Ohio. How was Ida doing? Not well. She had her first public seizure at his inaugural ball. But he continued to take care of her every day. He would put her little tiny body in this big old Victorian rocking chair that she'd had since her childhood. And she would sit all day and crochet. She became quite good at it. She would crochet slippers. She crocheted thousands of them and sent them to friends and family and to poor people in need in those days when those kinds of things were not available. And that became kind of her ministry and her way to help others. He would come out from work every day at lunch and look across the street where she was and she would be in the window and he'd throw a kiss to her and she'd throw a kiss back. And then they would spend their time together during the day. And then in 1896, Bill defeated William Jennings Bryan and became president, William McKinley. How many people knew that? How many people knew I was talking about William McKinley? How many people knew there's a McK there, there was a president McKinley? Yeah, we got, okay, we got a few names. So he actually became president of the United States. Isn't that amazing? So now here he is, president of the United States, and he has this wife that's not that healthy. But he goes in and um, he, he says, He's, he's there supposed to be his expertise, his finances and domestic affairs. And of course, as he points out later, God had a different plan for him. He ends up annexing Hawaii. And that's why I like the man. <laughs> he <laughs> and she started wearing, you know, the, the you know, grass skirts and he had a Hawaiian. No, no. But, but anyway, so they, they got that going. And uh, then he led us through the Spanish-American War. And after that, he helped make peace in the Boxer Rebellion in China. So he did all this international stuff. And then after that, the economy had a resurgence. And he became very popular. And we, for the first time in history, became, began to be mentioned as a world power. He was overwhelmingly re-elected as he ran again against William Jennings Bryan. Extremely popular at this point in his life. He's, um, and he was really good with her. It was amazing the relationship that they had. He changed some things, some protocol. Usually when the president sat, he would sit on one end and she would sit on the other end at a state meeting, in a state dinner. He always made sure she sat next to him. 
and everybody was to remain standing when they greeted people as they came in. He always made sure she was allowed to, to sit. And people remembered that whenever she would have a seizure, he would take his handkerchief or a napkin and place it gently over her face to hide her features. And after she, had, she was better, he would take it down and just continue talking as if nothing had happened. When he ran for office both times, he refused to travel because of her, and he just stayed at home. He said, if you want to hear me, come to my doorstep. And he would, they would see people, would see them driving around in a carriage all the time together. They were the closest of friends. Mark Hanna said, President McKinley is making it awful hard on the rest of us husbands in Washington. They really had a love affair. These two really cared about each other. Now, they were getting older. Um, McKinley was in his 50s, and he lost much of his hair, and what he had had gone gray. That happened sometimes to some people. And, and, but he'd also gotten heavy. He was well over 200 pounds. He had a big paunch and double chin. But he still, uh, and his eyebrows had gotten kind of bushy, as you can see in the picture. He had that cleft in his chin when he always been there. But he still stood up straight and he walked briskly. And he, had just a, he was just a really likable guy. He even-keeled, um, sweet-tempered, get along with anybody, good-humored. He could talk to anybody in any walk of life. And people just liked him. He liked having a lot of people around, a good sense of humor. He had a dry wit. He was not a great storyteller, but he loved to hear other people's jokes as long as they didn't tell off-color ones, in which case he would bristle. That's one thing that made him upset. He was a little bit vain about his clothes. He liked to dress up nice and often would wear a white vest and when he was campaigning, a red carnation. And his wife, what was she like? At that point, uh, Ida... Saxton, by the way, was her maiden name. She had become pretty frail, and her complexion was very kind of pallid, um, and her, eye, her hair was gray and sort of close-cropped. She's still kind of cute, you know, as you can see, but she was, she was pretty, pretty weak, and she, um, she did the best she could to hold things together. Her eyes, they said, were sometimes dull, maybe from pain or maybe from sedatives. And, you know... She, she had, a biographer said she had an indomitable spirit. She kept herself cheerful and supportive of him in all matters. She did what little she could to help, and no doubt they spent so much time together that she influenced him a lot behind the scenes in the interaction that they had. They were truly a remarkable team and had loved each other now for over 20 years. As I said, he was reelected, extremely popular, and went to Buffalo, and she joined him because they had friends in Buffalo, and he was going to speak there. So they went to Buffalo, she stayed there, and he went to speak um, at the Pan uh, American Exposition. And after he spoke, he was greeting people in the line and then going to go join his wife and friends, and this man came up, an uh, um, unemployed mill worker who had a bandage on his hand, and as he went to shake the other hand, he pulled out a revolver and shot him point blank, the president fell into the arms of the Secret Service man. The first thing he said is, make sure they don't hurt him. And then he said, oh, my wife, please be careful how you tell my wife. This was in September, and several weeks passed as they did surgeries on him and tried to keep him going. She rallied and had strength to try to help in the time. And the president, um, he was heard to be, be saying the Lord's Prayer over and over again every time they did surgery. Finally, he did pass away. Uh, he died in September. September 14, 1901. His last words were, it is God's way, his will, 
not ours, be done. He is still remembered as one of our better presidents. He was 56 at the time. He had set the stage for a man that really scared a lot of people. He was a man that only McKinley seemed to be able to control. And this vice president now became the president of the United States. Some of you have heard of him. His name was Theodore Roosevelt. After McKinley's death, Ida just kind of lost the will to live. She didn't make it to the funeral, but she lived long enough to organize a monument for him in Canton, Ohio, which is there to this day. She died six years later at 59. Kind of a melancholic story, but it is a story of two people who were really committed to each other. Commitment to each other is rare these days. And, and it gives us a couple thoughts. You know, to me, I, I, I think of a couple things that I naturally take away from this. Um, you know, one is just this, this idea that, that, people, that people do have hardships. You know, I've been thinking about this in life. Most countries in the world have it pretty bad. We've been pretty blessed. And when you read the Bible, you realize that this is not heaven. And hard times are going to come. And we need to love one another when we're married till death do us part. It's not about things going easy because there's always going to be hardships in any relationship. And that happens with your buddies and pals as well. It also made me think of what uh, Martin, Luther King, uh, Martin, Luther King, Martin Luther used to say, which is the priesthood of believers. We are the priesthood of believers. The guys up here that are pastors, we're not the only pastors. In God's perspective, every person in this room who knows Jesus is a pastor. And you minister to the people who are in your oikos, like we like to say, those people that are around you, those people that you are, uh, the, the people that are in your life. You're to minister to them. Those are the people that God has called you to minister to. They understood that concept. They ministered to the people around them in a powerful way. And it shows you that God can use you in any walk of life. In fact, incredibly, he can even use politicians. All right, that's what he did here. He used a politician. And so we need to pray for our politicians. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul exhorts us to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders. We just lost yesterday, we lost um, a member, you know, one of the, the chief, ju you know, the um, justice on the United States Supreme Court, um, Antonin Scalia, died. And man, that's a big blow for our country. There's a lot of weird things going on. We're having this new presidential elections and all things going on. We need to be praying for those things. But what I want to really center on today is a quality in the relationship that really stood out to me. And I think it's following what the Bible says relationships should be like. And this is what your relationship should be like whether you ever marry or not. And by the way, I am a, a big proponent of being single. I think we make too much about everybody has to be married. And I... Did I tell you this? No. <laughs> this is probably not the time. We'll talk later. Um, I love being married, but I get, I, over the years, I get really tired of all the pressure we put on people to get married. And see, a lot of times there are people that get married that end up telling me, I wish I'd never married, you know, and they probably shouldn't have. Um, marriage is not for everybody. Uh, in the Bible, a lot of people didn't get married and were very happy and fulfilled. So you need to do what God is calling you to do. But in any relationship, this quality is important, and I saw it in their relationship. And it's this. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, here it comes, consider others better 
than yourselves. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships, do you consider the other person's interests, do you consider them more important than yourself? Do you give them preferential treatment? That's what they did, right? Because he could easily have put her away in an asylum or hired somebody to take care of her and gone and done his thing. And people would have understood. And she could easily have said, no, I need you by my side. We aren't going anywhere. And she could have held him back and derailed his career. But she said, I'm willing to sacrifice. I don't even, I'll even go in public. And, you know, it's embarrassing because I might have a seizure, but I'm willing to be there to make this thing work. They both had to sacrifice for that to happen. And if you want good relationships with people, you have to make those kinds of sacrifices. You have to put the other person first. Consider their needs. Now, there's a catch that comes with this. And it's important to note that it says, I like the second verse where, where he says, each of you should not only look after your own interests. In other words, look after your own interests, but also look after the interests of others. Here's where we get in problems. If one person says, I'm going to love you and consider your needs better than my own, and the other person says, great, this is a great relationship. <laughs> Bring it on, you know. Then what we have here is an unhealthy relationship, right? Because what happens is one person becomes the taker and the other person becomes the giver, right? That's unhealthy. That's what we call codependency. And, and what's happening is we've got a problem because the person that's taking is becoming an extremely selfish person. They're inflexible. It always has to be done their way. And in time, they're not a very lovable person either. And the other person is enabling them to behave in a way that God doesn't like and that isn't going to be good for them down the road and for eternity. And the enabler sometimes thinks, well, I'm a better person, but they're not because they're actually an accomplice to the crime. They're actually helping the person become bad. I knew a lady once who would give her alcoholic husband beers. It became a way of controlling him. See what I'm saying? And so they are actually just as bad. And they're divesting themselves of who they really are and who God made them to be and not using the gifts and abilities God has given them. And so you need both in a healthy relationship. You need to both give. I don't know where you're at. I'd like... What we're going to do now is, if you're a taker, could you raise your hand? And then, no. <laughs> we won't do that. But, but I bet there are takers in this room and there are givers because my experience has been in every relationship, one person tends to lean one way and one person tends to lean the other. And they're both equally wrong. And so we need to try to, to go the other way. Um, if you're always taking, you need to think about that and see how you can be more flexible and more generous with what the other person desires and work with them and try to support them and not try to make them who you want them to be, but allow them to be who they are. And if you're a giver, you need to step back. You need to disagree. You need to say, no, that's not what I want to do. No, I don't think that's what's right. And you need to talk and communicate and stand your ground, but still be kind. When we talk about putting the other person first, what we're ultimately saying is helping that person be everything that God wants them to be. Helping them to use the gifts and abilities they have for service to God. You know, that's, that's the kind of attitude we have. 
one other thing that I noticed, and I, I noticed this later, is that have you noticed in most relationships one person is a little bit more prominent than the other? It's usually not that obvious. But when you, know, you get on the national scene like that, it can be more obvious. It doesn't mean the other person is better. It just means they, they need each other, but they can't both be equally as well known. That's just the way it is. And so that's where humility comes in, and they have to work together as a team. That's where they try to support one another. I have another story. I'll give you another story that's totally, totally off of this, but it, I think it illustrates what I'm saying. Um, years ago, when I was in Millbrae by San Francisco International Airport, I was a pastor, and a guy came in, and he said, I, I introduced myself to him. I said, what's your name? He said, my name is Donnie Colombo. And I said, Colombo? I said, where, where are you from? Because his accent was pretty strong. And he said, from Brockton, Massachusetts. And I said, Brockton, Massachusetts, home of the Brockton blockbuster, Rocky Marciano. He goes, how do you know that? I said, I just, I've heard it before, you know I mean? And he goes, well, the rock was my uncle. I said, really? He said, yeah, he, he, my grandpa married his, his, um, his sister, so he was my great uncle. I remember him coming by the house when I was a kid. Everybody was so excited about him. He was like the world hero. And I said, really? And so he says, yeah, and he starts talking to me about him. He says, you should read this book on him. It tells who he really is. So I kind of he, got interested because of this, and I, I read the book. You know what I found out? Ali Colombo, his grandpa, was more than an acquaintance. He and Rocky Marciano were absolutely inseparable. He talked him into going into boxing. He trained with him. He ran with him. He bunked with him when he was in training. They did nothing apart from each other for a large portion of their lives. And I watched this documentary, and they showed when Rocky Marciano won the, the world championship, they had a picture, and they had these people, they were interviewing all their friends, childhood friends, and they had a picture of them. They circled a picture of them in the ring. It was a video of them stopping and hugging each other uh, in the middle of the ring. And one of the guys said, I, he said, I get choked up when I see that. He says, because I remember we were just kids from this small town, and these two guys made it. And I'm just wondering what they're saying to each other right there. Could Rocky of Marciano have been Rocky Marciano without Ali Colombo? Could William McKinley have been William McKinley without Ida McKinley? Could Jeremiah have been Jeremiah without Baruch in the Bible? Or could um, Peter have been Peter without John and Mark and those guys around him? Could Paul have been Paul without Silas and Timothy and Luke? See, if everybody's walking with God, they all use their own gifts and it comes together to help one another. It's not a competition. The goal is to do the best you can with the gifts and abilities you have and to help that other person shine. In principle, though it was prophetic at the time it was said, but I think the principle is beautiful, um, what is said in John chapter 3, verse 30 by John the Baptist. As Jesus was coming up, he didn't compete with Jesus. He said, um, he must become greater, I must become less. When you have that kind of relationship with people where you're not concerned about them outshining you, but you actually want them to be the best that they can, then you've got a good relationship. That's the foundation of a great friendship. And I think that was really the foundation of the relationship that these two um, had with one another. You know, the next example in Philippians is the example of Jesus. And it's the example how Jesus, who was the most preeminent, actually gave his life for everybody in this room, for everybody in the world. 
I mean, there, there's a classic example, right? Of the one who's preeminent, who gives his life for the other person and makes them that most important in their life. And we need to give our lives to Jesus if we haven't. If you haven't come into a relationship with him, that's the starting point. You know, where you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That you believe Jesus um, died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And that you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And as we always say, you, you, you do that, please, if you're interested in doing that, please come and talk to us because we'd love to learn, you, teach you uh, more about Jesus and lead you down that path um, of freedom and joy in a relationship with him. I don't know who our next president is going to be. Sometimes it concerns me. But I'll tell you what, my confidence is this, that I know that Christ will still be my Lord. And that his love for me motivates me to love my world. Sound familiar? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the example of Bill and Ida, whom We'll meet one day in heaven. What a joy it will be to talk to them and find out what kind of what really happened on some of these events and uh, celebrate with them. And thank you for other people down the, through the years that we've known, the people that have been pals to us and have helped us to do well, the people whom we've been able to help. Lord, I thank you that we have the privilege to have relationships and that you've modeled what relationships should be like. Father, I pray that we put those people in our life um, first in our life uh, and that we would be encouragers to them, helping each of us to be the best we can in service to you. And pray for those that don't yet know you, that they'd realize that you loved us enough and that you actually died for us, and they'd give their lives to you as well. Pray these things in your name. Amen.